Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and we have an awesome topic in this episode, burnout, how to recognize the signs and what you can do to prevent reaching a crisis point in your life. But before we get to today's guest, don't forget about my newish project. It's called Your Story Pod. It's all about helping people tell and record their life story so they can share it with their family now and for years to come. Doing these Your Story Pods has been such a brilliant experience for the people I interview, for their family and friends who get to listen to the stories of their life told their way in their voice. If there's someone in your life who should tell their story, head to yourstorypod.com.au. Drop me a line and we'll make it happen. And now to this episode, my guest is Mello Calaco, who's written a terrific new book called Beating Burnout, Finding Balance. This really is one of the most important topics of our time. If you are not experiencing the signs of burnout yourself, then I bet there's someone in your life who is. This crazy modern world we've created for ourselves, lightning-paced work environments, increasingly complex social obligations, and our ubiquitous consumption of information, the old homo sapien brain often struggles to find balance. We need to stay vigilant, be aware of the signs, and understand the potential impacts on our life. And most importantly, we need to know what steps we can take to ensure we dodge the beast of burnout. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mello Calaco. Mello Calaco, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really excited about tonight. Now, I don't say your name with anywhere near the cool factor that you say your name. So you give it to us, Mello. What is your name? Oh, with an Italian accent, it's more like Melo Calarco. See, that's so much nicer. Unfortunately, Melo anglicized is often Charlie. Oh, is it? How does that work? I don't know. So the, the Aussies always and the English always destroy our Italian name. So um, it doesn't make any sense. No, so I'm definitely not a Charlie. I'm more Melo. Melo by name, Melo by nature. Good. I like that. All right. Well, let's go with Melo and I will bumble through it with my awful Australian accent. <laughs> hey, Mello, you have written a terrific book. It's called Beating Burnout, Finding Balance. This has to be the topic of the time, the topic of our ages, doesn't it? Absolutely. With what's been going on over the last few years to sort of shine a spotlight on it, definitely burnout is a, a topic. There's usually words over the years, you know, overwhelm, burnout seems to be the, the latest buzzwords with what's been going on lately for sure. So why'd you write the book, mate? What's your mission with the, the book that you've written and the work that you do? What's the personal factor for you? Yeah, I'm glad you use the word mission because I feel like I'm really on a mission right now, actually. Like my mission is to basically help as many people as possible, prevent burnout, find balance in their life. And I've always done a version of that over the years with the coaching work that I do and teaching mindfulness, you know, for example. But really lately, I have a burning desire to like help as many people as possible. You know, during the pandemic alone, in the last 18 months or so, with the sessions that I do virtually going around the world, I supported over 80,000 people you know, in seminars and workshops. And I thought, you know what, I want to help even more than that. It's still not enough. I want to help more. So hence the book was born. I thought if I get a book out there in the world that can help some other people that I can't reach you know, virtually or in you know, face-to-face seminars. So yeah, the book's the mission to reach you know, far and wide as much as possible. 
Well, you've come to the right place, mate, because I was talking to someone on the phone this afternoon, actually a listener to the show who we've, we've written to each other a few times, and he gave me a call to Savo, and we just chewed the fat. And I was, I was talking to him about you know, my mission, and it's come late. You know, it's, I haven't been able to articulate it the whole time through the podcast, but here we are coming into our eighth or ninth year, and I'm able to articulate it in that the power of leadership is not just about making the team work better and produce better results in the office or in the workplace. It's that as leaders, we have the ability to positively impact so many people's actual lives, not just what goes on at work, not just what we produce, not just the team dynamics, but their actual life to help them feel better about all the time they spend at work and take away something positive rather than something negative. And your mission sounds really familiar with that to that or really similar to that Tell us then, this word that we use so often, burnout, what does it actually mean? Yeah, it gets thrown around a fair bit, and some people actually confuse stress and burnout. Right. Yeah, so first of all, you know, rewinding to that a little bit, you know, stress is you know, overuse and overstress and overwhelm will, can lead to burnout. Um, some people confuse overwhelm and you know, feeling stress to burnout. So the difference of that is basically when you are stressed and you know, you're you feel like you're under the pump and you know, things are really manic. Usually if you have a few good nights sleep or you eat well or you have a little restful weekend, you'll recover from that. Whereas burnout is not like that. You can sleep all you like, you can eat all you like, and you just you just never have the energy. So you know, the WHO, they have refined or revised the term of burnout over the last you know, 11 times over the last you know, so many years. And in 2019, they came up with it's categorized by you know three main things you know resulting from workplace stress being unmanaged number one you know for burnout is definitely just that fatigue exhaustion feeling depleted you know so feeling like you've just got no energy so that's number one number two is disconnected like feeling disconnected from yourself from your work from the people around you and number three for burnout is just that lack of efficacy and efficiency in the work that you do so what would normally be quite easy for you is a challenge. You know, someone gives you a job to do at work, you think, oh my God, that's just so hard, it's so difficult, making more errors, making more mistakes. So those three really sort of sum up what burnout is. That's a really great definition. I like that. So the first is just feeling depleted. A good night's rest, a relaxing weekend isn't enough. We've gone beyond that. It's not a case of stress. Uh, number two is feeling disconnected. Uh, you, you led with disconnected from your work. And I find that interesting because my thinking goes straight away is to disconnected from who you really are, your real life. And and you followed up with that. But to say work first, it kind of reminds me of the lens through which we, we think about most of this stuff. But just being disconnected in general from your work, sure, but from who you are as a person, from the relationships that are really important to you. That's number two. And number three is a lack of efficacy or efficiency. You're just not able to get things done that you normally get done. That's when you're dealing with burnout. So is it a growing problem or are we just hearing about it more? Is it like shark attacks where they've always been a thing, but we just hear about them more often or anything bad in society because we're so hyper-connected and tuned into all sorts of different media? Is this a growing problem or are we just hearing about it more? Well, do you see more of it around yourself? 
Do you see just even the people around you? You know what? I absolutely do. And I've got to be careful not to generalize with that and take it as an objective fact, because I could also just be looking at my cohort. You know, most people I know are about my age. You know, there are people, there are people who are sharing the same stage of life. I'm in my, I'm 47, nearly 48. So people I know are senior managers. They've got big jobs. They've got young kids or kids who are teenagers. They've got super busy lives. So anecdotally, absolutely. But I always temper that with maybe that's just the people I know. Yeah. And who's in your world and who's around you. But most of us don't have to look far to find somebody around you that is burning out or suffering you know, poor mental health. Definitely the pandemic shine a light on it. So I'd actually have really so many people over that period of time, over you know, delayed two years or whatever it was, or three years, there's that fatigue, that underlying fatigue, loneliness, uncertainty that was all in there. That definitely has to have a consequence. It was there already, and it has been growing a growing problem over the last few decades. And I think a lot to blame is the fast moving pace of life that we have, the, the always on attitude. We're always accessible. We never switch off. And most of the the cohort that I work with are also busy executives, you know, CEOs, um, leaders, and they're just on all the time. So there has to be a consequence to that. We're not designed to be on 24-7. We're designed to sort of, yes, there's a a stimulus and a response, and then we need to switch off from that and have some, you know, time out to get some downtime. So more and more, definitely, you know, the fast-moving pace of life, technology, obviously, another, another thing where we always have our machines on our our emails are always there for us and then the pandemic definitely what i've seen myself personally i I follow the mental health of the situation quite closely you know and through the pandemic there initially there was a lot of anxiety a lot of fear a lot of that sort of new world of what's going on here and then it turned into a bit of like depression and sort of loneliness and sadness and then there's a bit almost like post-traumatic stress or here we go again another lockdown we sort of had to get through that and then it was, you know, it just kept going on and on and on. It's like running a marathon and then, hey, guys, you got to run another marathon. you got to run another marathon. And it just kept going. So there has to be a consequence from that. Yeah. And, mate, I, t- I totally have b- bought into it and I, I agree. And, and I feel like though anecdotally it's true, as I said. I read enough about it to suggest that it's true. But I also feel as though it's my role as a thinking person to examine it closely. And when I was preparing for this conversation with you today, I was thinking it through. I, I was thinking, what about other generations? You know, think about the generation in Europe, especially that lived through World War One and World War Two. I mean, could you imagine living in a time World War One? You know, for example, and it's front of mind for me because my nine-year-old is obsessed with history and the war, and it's fab- it's a fabulous hobby of his. But it just brings these things front of mind for me. But imagine living in London in 1915, and a wave after wave after wave of young men are heading off to die in the muddy trenches of France. Imagine living in World War II and you think, here we go again. And not only here we go again, let's go, you know, think of London people, they're being attacked in their city for the first time that century. So there's the Blitz, they're being bombed every night. Uh, think about the end of World War I when finally the battle was over and then we got the flu. You know, the flu swept through the globe and killed millions of people. I mean, I can think of a bunch of times in history where that generation of people could say, look at us and go, 
what are you bunch of softies? I know it was really difficult for a lot of people, but for a lot of people, hey, let's be honest, they just had to stay home and watch Netflix through COVID. I mean, there was a lot of worry about employment for people, but we weren't getting bombed. We had Netflix. A lot of people were continued to be employed. There was a big boredom factor and a lot of people put on a bit of weight, but that's not exactly the same as the Blitz, nor is it the same as, say, in the 70s and the 80s when they were living through the very real fear and the late 60s of nuclear war between the world's two powers. So I don't want to pull the rug from under us because I'm part of this generation but it just feels as though we're not special as a generation. We have our stresses, sure, but every generation in living memory has had things to be concerned about. Yeah, definitely. I think the difference now in many ways, and I love what you're saying there, and there's a lot of truth in that, and it just keeps going. Every generation has its struggles. Every generation has its hard times. I think what is happening now is that just that unrelenting pace of life is just never ending, and it just keeps going. And you know, I was hearing some statistics recently on whether they're true or not. I'm not sure exactly, but you know, the average person in the 15th century would take in so much information in a year, the same amount we take in a single day. It's like the equivalent of 276, 276 newspapers in a day. We can't like take in that much information. It's just overwhelm and over you know, stimulate. The biggest word I hear a lot these days, honestly, in the work that I do, and I work in psychiatric clinics also, is overwhelm. It's just too much. Too much. And I think that's the difference. You know, I, I believe in what I was talking about before about previous generations having something. But I've also said in the past on this podcast, at least when they went home from work, they left work and they left it behind. You and I are hyper-connected. Every time we open an app and just check Twitter for a second, we'll just see if that person has sent that email I'm kind of half waiting for. That costs us energy because the the cost in switching from talking to my kids to checking email ever so briefly, that costs energy. And if we add up the number of times we do that every day, every week, every year, that's a whole bunch of output of energy that previous generations haven't had to deal with. So maybe that's the difference. So if I'm being unkind about what we're having to put up with compared to generations before us, the difference is that continual drain on our attention and what that costs us in terms of energy and being present. Exactly. Attention switching mm. constantly through the day. You're switching your attention thousands of times. And in this fast, we're going from an email to a text to a, a telephone call. I was, I was reading something recently too on that, where it's, you know, if you get a pop-up notification, let's say on your computer that takes you away from the task at hand, even if you just look at the you don't even open it, you just look at it or a, or a little text in the background, like you said, a Twitter tweet and you look at it and you don't open it, it takes an average of 64 seconds to get your attention back, back on track, which doesn't sound long, but in the course of a day, that can be every five minutes or every three minutes or every two minutes and you add that up over a week, it's usually about nine hours of lost time context switching and you feel wiped out. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right. So we do have good reason to be feeling burnt out. It, it is a real thing in our society and people are dealing with it every day and it's affecting their life. And, you know, the fact that we're not being bombed like London was in Second World War, the fact that we're not sitting under the cloud of a nuclear war doesn't mean it's any less 
problematic for us. We can only deal with the problems that we're dealing with and they're real. And we're perhaps the first era to genuinely deal with this kind of hyper-connectedness that is sucking so much energy from us. You make the point in your book really well, Mello, that it is much better to prevent burnout than it is to try and cure it. Tell me what you mean by that and, and what we can do with that nugget of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, first of all, I would say most people don't realize they're burning out until it's too late. So for my book itself, I interviewed around about 200 people who had experienced burnout, which is almost sad on its own that I could find 200 people quite easily. And of those 200 people, 90% of them didn't even realize they were burning out until they actually had some sort of panic attack or some sort of crisis situation. 90%. I knew it would be high, but I didn't think it would be that much. So first of all, that lack of sort of self-awareness. The other 10%, people sort of knew that something was happening. They weren't quite right, but they didn't have the tools and techniques to come out of it. All the other ones just kept on powering on. They just said, okay, I know I'm fast and things are, things are moving. They just kept pushing on no matter what. And then the consequences burn out. So those you know, feelings. So the first step is like self-awareness to sort of catch that. And what I see you know, with stress, it's like an evolution. In the work that I do, if I can catch someone in the earlier stages of stress than the latter stages, it's much easier work for me to get them back to functioning again. So, you know, in a busy world that we live in, you were talking about, you know, leadership and executives and athletes and high performers and high achievers, there's stress, right? Every single day. And we need it. We need it to drive us, to motivate us, to help us achieve our goals. We need an amount of it. And I call this the green zone. And the green zone, you can operate in this as long as you do your self-care, as long as you're sleeping well, eating well, you know, meditating and do that. You can thrive in that stress green zone. If you don't look after yourself on a daily basis, though, it turns into what I call the yellow zone or chronic stress. And that's what we're talking about before, that overwhelm, overstimulated, can't sleep at night, therefore that has an effect on your day the next day, trying to do too many things, trying to juggle too many balls, as they say. And this is that chronic stress, adrenaline and cortisol going through the body continuously. And then that obviously will tip the balance into the next stage, the orange zone, I call. And the orange zone is more like allostatic stress or allostatic load. The big difference between the yellow and green, and then it turns into the orange, is like when it reaches the orange, it's like, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've got no energy left. And it started to tip that balance. And then that from the orange zone, allostatic load, it would go into the red zone. And the red zone is full burnout or poor mental health. So I'm really interested in that. In You described before 90% of the people that you spoke about who have burnt out didn't know it was coming until there was an event. So two questions, and, and you, you talked about your zones there, which I think gives it great scaffolding. What should they have seen? What were the signs or the symptoms along the way that they could well have seen? And secondly, what's typical of the event that grabs their attention? You mentioned panic attack. I'm fascinated with what has woken up these 90% of that 200 people to, okay, I, I was heading towards burnout and I missed these signs and I know I'm burnt out because this happened. Yeah, it can be that extreme. Uh, one of my clients, for example, he was literally driving to work one day and he's just approaching the workplace and absolutely full panic attack. He thought it was a heart attack. So he turned around his car and just drove straight to the GP and said, something's happening here. And they, they explained it as a panic attack. Yeah. So it was a full physical. So usually there's you know, three sort of areas that we notice burnout. You know, one is the physical symptoms, just feeling drained, 
maybe some physiological symptoms like headaches or migraines or you know, stomach pains or tightness through the body. The other one's more emotional things where you're feeling sort of overwhelmed or undervalued, feeling a lack of self-worth, so those sort of things. Again, that disconnect there. And the other one is behavioral. You know, so you might withdraw from meetings. You might not have the energy to show up at places. You might withdraw from your responsibilities. You might not show up on the Teams meeting or the Zoom meeting and not show your face and those sort of things. So there's physical, emotional and behavioral things that happen. It's a bit like I often use the analogy of like you know, driving the car and the oil light comes on, you know, starts flashing at you, put oil in my car, please. But you just ignore it and you just keep driving. The next light comes on, you know, it starts flashing at you and you just keep ignoring the signs all the time. Eventually that car's going to blow up or burn out, right? Grind to a halt. Yeah, and we often ignore those little signs, you know, even just insomnia, for example, where you can't sleep at night is a sign, all those things. And how lucky are we that we live in a time now where it's okay to talk about these things? I mean, one of the, we know in, in eras gone by, people just didn't talk about this stuff and we're a lot more open about it now. And and I love the role, cliche as it might be, high profile people in our society, often sports people are willing to talk about step, you know, having to step away from their sport because of mental health issues. And the fact that they're willing to do that, it makes it mainstream, makes it more accessible, makes a lot more people willing to talk about it. We've got a long way to go, of course, but there's never better, been a better time to live than now for being willing to talk about those things. So I think that's really positive. Hey, the, um, the, the client of yours who had the panic attack on the way to work in the car, what are the other things that, that make people finally work it out? It usually has a flow and effect to other things. So, you know, so relationships, your home life, your family life. So when you start seeing some of these you know, flags coming up again, that disconnect from family, disconnect from friends, a whole range of things that can be big, smaller. Otherwise, usually we ignore them until it gets to a point where you cannot take it anymore. We just always got to keep going. Is it the old boiling frog analogy really, isn't it? You know, the, the falling apart of relationships and of knowing who you are as a person can creep up on you. And eventually you work out, hang on, this water's really, really hot. And I didn't notice it was getting hotter. All of a sudden, I don't have great relationships with these important people. All of a sudden, I have zero hobbies in my life. All of a sudden, I don't do anything except go to work where I feel under pressure and then come home where I feel under pressure because I'm spending so much time thinking about work and there's nothing else in my life. That can happen a bit like the water just being heated up over time and we just sit there like a dumb frog putting up with the increased heat until finally something flicks. It's um, it's a pretty sad state. Now, Melo, I ask a, a number of my guests this, and they all give me pretty good answers, but I'm going to continue to do it with people like you who know. <laughs> Why sure. have we done this to ourselves? Homo sapiens, we evolved from the Neanderthals. We have come into this amazing world, which is an amazing world because we don't know of any other planet of the billions and trillions of them out there that have life on them. We live in this amazing moment in time when you and I can connect online. I've got my phone right here that can do a million things. My family is living this amazing life. My kids have a million options when it comes to activities they can choose to do. Life is so good. Why do we do this to ourselves? What is it about human beings that sends us down this path where like a dumb frog in water that's getting hot, we let our life get knocked so far out of proportion? Yeah, it's a great question. This could be a two-hour discussion, this one. It's definitely, but um, 
Yeah, what I do know from coaching lots of people is is humans like progress. We like to feel that we're developing, we're growing, and we're learning. Some of us just don't know the limit to that. Some of us just keep striving, especially high achievers, entrepreneurs. You know, just just never ending. One of the first stages to burnout, to be honest, is actually working really hard to prove your worth, and and everything else gets compromised from that. And then it sort of follows down those tiers afterwards, and then you start lacking self care. You know, your relationships suffer, as I said, and all those other things. So it's a good question why. I don't know exactly why, but we just have this sort of driving desire just to keep sort of pushing and moving and, and keeping up with this pace. And what I try to teach a lot of my clients that I work with, and they might be a, a, a busy surgeon or an athlete, is to create some space and create some downtime to balance out that parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system so we can actually they can find that balance in life. A lot of them won't give themselves permission to stop, though. It takes a time to do that. Yeah, sorry. I remember I asked Mel Kettle this, who came on the show towards the end of last year in an episode called Reclaim Your Life, episode 187, a little bit of crossover with this one, but a different focus. And Mel, Mel gave a pretty good answer to that. You gave an excellent answer to that. Just then, Mel talked about the two things. Firstly, we work in organizations that value time at the desk. And as old-fashioned as that seems, there are still a lot of people who work in organizations like that. In fact, the fact that a few get praised publicly for not being that way almost proves the rule that most are. And we can kid ourselves all we like, but most organizations still value that. Being present, physically there, or in the team's meetings, virtually there, it's the same kind of impact on your life. That's number one. And number two is people, no matter how old we get and how much money's in the bank and how comfortable we are in our career, we're always trying to prove ourselves. Like you said, we start off that way thinking, oh, I've got to work really hard. I've got to work really hard. I want to get up. I want, you know, I want to be able to buy my house, have a car and put food on the table and all of that stuff. And long after those goals have been achieved and we're doing that comfortably, that inner drive to continue to prove ourselves almost like a survival well past the point. We're no longer battling for survival, but we still have the anxiety attached to someone who is battling for survival. Yeah. And, and a great point. And I, I, love, I know Mel Kettle actually, so I, I love, I love her words there. Yeah. That sort of feeling that you have to be at work at six o'clock in the morning at the desk and you know, last one to leave in the evening that is still around, unfortunately, but we can be just as efficient in, four hours of focused work versus eight hours of unfocused work. And I hope that people realize that now. But yeah, it's a, once you set that bar high and once you set your your homeostasis up at that high where you feel like you're that boiling frog analogy, we keep adapting to the environment that we're in all the time. It's hard to actually downregulate that. It's really hard to actually slow down. And people feel that if they slow down, they're not performing anymore. But I, I actually pose the opposite slowing down will help you perform better. If you stopped for five minutes, let's say, or two minutes and did a two-minute meditation or a 10-minute practice or just went for a walk around the block or patted the dog for two minutes, your next two hours would be more productive. Uh, that's one of those things that we we humans, we struggle with that kind of logic. It's like, I, I know you are, you're a cyclist. I love swimming. I like to exercise and stay fit. And it always kind of bugs me, amuses me, does something to me when I hear people say they're too tired to exercise and I think, my God, if only you realize what kind of energy exercise would give you. It's the point that you're making there about work. If only you realized how much better you would be at whatever job you do, if you gave yourself some time to think clearly, 
if you gave yourself time to be yourself, to be satisfied with the rest of your life and your relationships and meaningful activities, we have trouble with that because it's it's one step away. It's like we've got to work towards that. Uh, whereas right now I can tell I'm too tired to get up from go for a run. And right now I can tell you I'm I'm too busy to relax and go and spend time with my kids and enjoy my hobby. Anyway, you can you can hear them starting to uh, starting to get. It, it actually annoys me that I'm part of this species that has all this opportunity at our fingertips, and we're kind of blowing it. We're kind of wasting our time being corporate slaves, and and that that actually bothers me on the inside. But anyway, let's get to some of your solutions because, of course, we are going to extract some wisdom out of you. Now, I know that mindfulness is a really important a part of your approach, and. Like any fabulous practice, when something becomes mainstream, it all almost loses a little bit of its punch because I don't know it it kind of it gets commonized and people it gets watered down and over the term gets overused and perhaps we undervalue what it's really all about. So remind me, re-energize me about the value of mindfulness. What do you mean when you talk about mindfulness and what role can it play in our life? Yeah, mindfulness underpins a lot of my work and it has done for the last three decades, basically. Not only my own practice where I've been practicing it for so long, but in the work that I do. And the biggest buzz that I get is when I can actually get the skeptics over the line as someone that's never practiced meditation or mindfulness and they, they feel the benefits. So the first fundamental pillar of mindfulness really is self-awareness, you know, 101. So any great leader you know, knows that self-awareness is one of the you know, first fundamental pillars that they need you know, to be a great leader, to, to be emotionally intelligent. So number one is self-awareness. You, you know, you can't change what you don't notice. So with mindfulness practice, we become more aware of who we are inside and out. You know, some of the buttons that might, you know, push us or some of the things that tip us over the edge. When it comes to burnout, we become aware of our energy, like when we might need a little break if we're feeling a bit stressed or we've you know, become aware of ourselves physically, mentally and emotionally. So that self-awareness is number one. Then with that self-awareness, number two is the ability to self-regulate. So in any given situation, if you're feeling a bit stressed, you're feeling a bit wired, feeling a bit tired, feeling a bit fatigued, maybe you just need to stop and do some breath work, let's say, for a little while to self-regulate the nervous system, to deactivate the amygdala, to activate the, you know, the prefrontal cortex, even just stopping for a little while. I love what Einstein says. He says something like, I think 99 times, I find nothing, I stop. I swim in the silence and the truth comes. So sometimes we just have to stop and self-regulate ourselves so then the, the wisdom can come out, the truth can come out, the, you know, the stories can come out. Can I check Twitter and Facebook while I'm stopping and enjoying the silence? <laughs> no, no, that's just filling up your space with fodder. And that's what gets me, like you're saying, what really gets you is so many people say we don't have enough time. As soon as you get time, what's the first thing you do? Flush it down the toilet. Yeah, fill it up with fodder. Let's get my phone out and just look at Instagram and Twitter and fill up my headspace with more fodder. So, you know, creating a bit of space. So no, that doesn't count. I'm sorry, Dave. Hey, I love the um, simplicity of your description of mindfulness. Two pillars, and, and you, you might have been about to go on to a third, I'm not sure. But number one is self-awareness because you can't change what you can't notice. So taking that time to get back in touch with yourself and number two is the ability to self-regulate because what good is self-awareness if you don't do anything about it? So that's the ability to have some discipline and 
do the things that you know are good for you, to step back and take a moment to give yourself some clarity of thought rather than rushing through and thinking that just continuing to push, push, push is going to give you the result that you want. Was there a third pillar? Have I cut you off? No, no, that's great. That's the first two that I start teaching. And then there's many pillars after that. You might be weaving in gratitude practices and a whole lot of other things after that. But you know, self-regulation is you know the ability to create space between that stimulus and response. So when we are more mindful of, we might be in a meeting, let's say, and we're starting to get a bit aggravated, we're starting to get a bit heated. If we can create space before we react, we can actually you know take a- Make a goose of ourselves. Yeah, it might be one breath. You just take one full breath and then one breath out, and then you have that space then to respond more mindfully as opposed to reactively. So, Mello, obviously mindfulness plays a role in your life. Can you describe to us the kind of role it, it plays in your life and then water it down for those of, who aren't going to go boots and all, but we can see the value in the principles that you're talking about? How could mindfulness look in our life? Well, I, I, again, I like to keep it really simple, like really implementable. I've practiced it for many years. I actually, as you might read in a book, I cycled around the world in my mountain bike and I lived in monasteries and temples along the way and I learned various concepts and things. And sometimes we can overcomplicate what a simple practice is. So I like to keep it really simple. There's two. That's what we like to do. Yeah, exactly. We like to like you know, create volumes of books about things. Well, you need to you create a PowerPoint presentation about this. About 30 <laughs> slides. We could really jazz it up. <laughs> i got one slide for you. One slide. And that's basically, there's two main ways to practice mindfulness. One is what's called the formal practice. What we traditionally know is stopping, doing some breath work, connecting with the body and the breath. It might be a two-minute practice. It might be a five-minute practice. It might be plugging in one of those apps like Headspace or Smiling Mind or one of those. So that's the formal practice where you actually stop. And then there's what's called the non-formal practice. And the non-formal practice is actually doing all those things that you do in the day, but you do them more mindfully. And the great thing about that is it doesn't take any extra time. So for example, showering, washing your hair, not that you have that uh, problem there, but uh, brushing your teeth or uh, walking or driving, all these things that we often do in default mode, and autopilot, we do them more mindfully. And the reason that's very powerful, a lot of people underestimate this second part, but the reason that's really powerful is because when your mind is on task in the thing that you are doing, whether that is eating or driving or walking or whatever it is, we are the happiest and we are engaged in what we're doing. It's usually when the mind goes offline, it starts ruminating or thinking about the future or going into the past and thinking of that thing, that's where mental health problems can arise. So we train ourselves to be present. Yeah, to be in the present with everything, with your kids, with your wife, with your partner, when you're walking, when you're cycling, all of these things. It's actually attention training. And you know, when we have these two things going on, we can actually be more present in everything we do. A lot of the anxiety that I see in the work that I do, it's often catastrophizing about a future that hasn't even happened yet. Oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if, what if, what if, what if? And we can follow that thread so far into the future, we create a story, and that story creates anxiety, overwhelm, and can lead to burnout. When we practice mindfulness, we can be more present with what is happening. That idea of being present, and you're so right, I've heard that a number of times, the the, the data and the research around when we're not thinking about what we're doing, we're, we're thinking about the future or other problems, we're actually less happy, and we're much happier when we're present. The idea around being present, it's such a fundamental behavior that can either set us up for success or otherwise. It's a bit like I, I played a lot of sport when I was a kid, you know, and every ball sport, 
the number one piece of advice is watch the ball. When you're playing cricket, the number one piece of advice is watch the ball. Same as when you're playing golf, same as when you're kicking a footy. Don't lift your head, watch the ball. And it almost is said so much to you as a kid by every coach you've ever had that it loses its value. And then eventually you come around to realize as a mature adult, you know what the most important thing about hitting a ball is? Watching the ball. <laughs> Just like everyone was saying to me, every team I was part of as a kid, it's almost so important that we we let it wash over us because it's said to us so often. You know that? If we can all just make that one change, whether it's when we're engaging with our our partner, our kids, our colleagues at work, the people we lead, our own leader, the tasks that we're doing, if we could just all be a little more present in that thing that we're doing, it's like watching the ball as a cricketer. It's absolutely fundamental to success. Totally. I love that analogy. And I do coach a lot of athletes and that's exactly what I teach, just to be present with what is happening. Let's say it's a golfer, you know, instead of worrying about the seven holes that they've just missed or didn't go well, or the next one that's going to go or trying to win the game, just worry about every single hole. There's 18 holes and there's 18 opportunities to become present again. And that really helps to, to win the game. And actually, I, I interviewed a whole lot of leaders actually not long ago for just some, some other work that I was doing. And I asked them the question, when are you at your best? Like, when are you truly at your 100% best and you're leading your leadership role is really feeling great. And after some consideration, most of them come up with the answer when I'm present, when I'm fully present. But that takes an effort to be present because as a busy leader, they're often thinking about the next thing or they don't have time to stay with somebody and be you know, with their team members. So it takes some effort to be present. And that's where the, the mindfulness practice and training can really help that. All right. Million dollar question, Mello. You've convinced me that burnout is a thing. You convinced me that it's real for us, that people often don't pick up the signs on the way until the frog is boiled and they're in the red zone. What are three things or a couple of things that you can leave us with so I can remember you tomorrow and next week and next month and, and the value of this conversation? Sure. And some of it may be summarizing what we've just talked about, but you know, step one would be Catch yourself, catch yourself, catch yourself. Catch yourself, that self-awareness piece that I was talking about. Catch yourself when you're trying to move too fast. Catch yourself when you're trying to do too many things. Catch yourself when you're feeling fatigued and tired and just develop that self-awareness around that. That's that preventative measure. So first of all, just keep catching yourself when you're stressed and doing something about it. The second one is definitely what I said before. Please, please, please give yourself permission to stop throughout the day, have renewal breaks throughout the day as much as possible. We are not machines. We cannot keep going 24-7 without any consequence. So give yourself permission to stop. I often teach in, my, in the work that I do a 90-second breath break. And a 90-second breath break can be a game changer in your day when you're feeling, you know, you've got too many tabs open on the computer. You just don't know what you're doing anymore. Stop, pause, follow your breath for 90 seconds activate the parasympathetic nervous system, deactivate the sympathetic nervous system. So give yourself permission to stop is number two. Please, 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 the number two. Number three is really be diligent of your self-care because really burnout is a consequence of cumulative lack of self-care. Like we said before, like you were saying before, too busy, I won't go to the gym tonight, you know, I'll skip dinner, I'll just get takeaway. But actually self-care 101, eating well, sleeping well, exercising, meditating, all of these things. I often teach in the work that I do, make them not negotiable. 
that your self-care is not negotiable. And I always say, just start with one thing. It might be a morning walk, you know, for example. Then after your morning walk, once that's established as a habit, you might do your meditation after that or have a healthy breakfast. So self-care 101, I often say to people, like, you know, we all know what's good for us. We all know we need it. But often, you know, common sense isn't always common practice. So get back to those self-care practices. Then you'll be more resilient. You'll have more energy. My morning practice is pretty simple. Exactly what I said. I get up quite early to get that serotonin rush into me, go for a nice brisk morning walk, sometimes a swim in this weather. And then I do a 20-minute meditation practice just to find that stillness. And then I have a healthy breakfast. So that's three wins before I've even looked at my emails or done anything. My golden rule around this, if you want to you know, take a golden quote in a way, is like the first thing you do in a day is for you, not for anybody else. And ask yourself this one question every single day. What have I done for me today? What have I done that's just for me? That is a powerful question to ask. And that is a, a fantastic collection of pieces of advice, Mello. Look, I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, David. Thanks, everybody. Uh, great to be here. And that was Mello Kalako, finding balance, not burnout. Such an important topic for us in 2023. I love chatting with Mello about it all, and I loved his advice. Number one, catch yourself. When you're trying to move too fast, do too much, and then do something about it. Number two, give yourself permission to stop. Nothing, not that report, that meeting preparation, or getting your child to football training on time, none of it is worth your mental health. You've got to give yourself permission to stop and find some balance. And number three, be diligent of your self-care. Rest, nutrition, positive social connections, exercise, because burnout is the cumulative effect of a lack of self-care. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Mello on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teams with an s.guru forward slash podcast. And don't forget to check out my new project, yourstorypod.com.au and get in touch if there's someone you care about who should tell their story. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.